G'day, Bridgeway. <laughs> How's everyone doing? Great, great. It's going to be an amazing day today. And hello to everyone online watching live stream. Your bedhead looks great. And uh, we're going to have a great time here today. And, uh, you know, it is an awesome opportunity to get a chance to work with these high school students. And, you know, you guys have got a chance to now meet Brett, one of my interns, and James, one of my interns. And I have an awesome leadership team of adults and young adults that work with our high school students. And they are the ones that make um, so much of God's work happen. And I'm, I'm blessed by them. And then we have amazing teenagers as well that are, are, are awesome ministers of God. Um, we're going to dive right in today because we have a bit we're going to cover. And we're in part 69 of our Being Jesus series. And I'm going to give you um, some bad news real quick. All those verses on your bulletin, not doing them, ha ha, fooled you. No, um, actually it's a very much a, 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 a switch up by the Holy Spirit, that there was a little bit of a, of a flip-flop, and so you're getting next week's message this week, and this week's message next week. And so uh, I will give you the verses that we'll be going through. They're going to be up on the screen either way, but uh, it's going to be um, still what I think God wants us to go through today. And so... I want to start with a question, really a challenge to talk about. Um, and the question is this, to what extent do you feel like you grasp or you comprehend the news of life that comes in Jesus? I mean, that's why we're here. That's the primary reason that we're here. You know, we're here sitting around family and friends and strangers. And let's be honest, most of the people around you are strangers. And we're all gathered here together, submitting ourselves to his word responding in songs of gratitude and in response to the Lord. But do we actually grasp, do we understand what the news of new life in Jesus really is? One of the questions that I ask our fuel volunteer staff on the application they fill out is, in one paragraph, how would you describe the gospel of Jesus Christ to a teenager? And I love it because that's a hard question. I don't even think it's possible. But I ask you that same question. What would you say? Because most of us, we know of the news of life that comes in Jesus, but we may not know the news of life that comes in Jesus. We know of the cross and how fundamental it is to the spiritual life, but do we know the cross? There's a famous old quote from the Quakers that says, when did the name God become more than just a word to you? When did the name Jesus become more than just a word to you? And you may be wondering, what's the difference? To me, there's a massive distinction between knowing of something and knowing something. And so let me use the example of if somebody is a fan of a celebrity. Now, when I was 18, I had my first Hollywood crush, Natalie Portman in episode one of Star Wars. All right? And I just watched the movie, and I was like, oh, she's cool. And so then you go online, and you start looking up stuff about her, and you start getting information about her, and oh, and she's, oh, you know, she's Jewish background, that's cool. Oh, and she studied over in, like, the East Coast, and, you know, and I'm learning all this stuff, and I was even stupid enough, and I say stupid, to write a letter <laughs> to Natalie Portman, to go, oh, I think you're cool, blah, 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 blah. And I remember I told this story to some of my um, co-workers at Azusa Pacific when I worked there um, a number of years ago, and they got one of the vice presidents of the school, they got a picture of Natalie Portman, and he signed it, and they mailed it to me. Now, this was like 10 years later, right? And it's in my office, if you ever want to see it, and it's hilarious. But, um, but the reason I use this as an example, although it's amusing and makes me look how foolish I am, because I was 18. If it was like 13, it makes sense. When it's 18, you're like, come on, Matt is I knew a lot of Natalie Portman, but I cannot say that I knew Natalie Portman. 
right? I never had met her. I never had engaged with her. So you can be a fan of something and still not know that something or that person. And I think that's what happens with a lot of us. And if you've noticed, I've just been calling this life in Jesus news thus far. I haven't called it good news yet. And the reason why I haven't done that is because when we know and when we just know of life with Jesus, when we just know of the cross, that is all it seems to remain. News that is incredibly hard to get excited about. Which is why I think so many of us struggle to praise with any type of passion. Which is why we struggle to go and serve. Which is why we struggle to do so many things that we know are characteristics of followers of Jesus Christ. But when we intimately know the life that comes in an encounter with Jesus, and we know the critical purpose of the cross, it becomes such excellent news, but you can't help but frame your life around it. You go from being content to attend and gather occasionally with Christians to a thirst to be present constantly with other people that love him. You go from a limited diet of his word to an aspect of feasting on his word. You go from a knowing a God who speaks to hearing a God who speaks. And so what we will hear from the mouth of Jesus in the text we're going today, going through today, it broadly hits all of us where we're at. Whether you're a veteran in the faith or you're someone that feels like you're here, but you're here at a distance, or you're someone that you know you're just half-heartedly here. And so today, let's come to know that life that comes in Jesus in a manner that is both excellent and revolutionary. And so the fill-in-the-blank that is on your sheet, even though we're not doing the verses, the fill-in-the-blank still applies. It goes like this. God's creativity means fresh interactions. And we're going to see how this pans out. And so to take a couple steps back for the last couple weeks, Jesus has just recently raised Lazarus from the dead, and he's drawn a pretty massive crowd. And everybody's on their way up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover, and they're celebrating God's redemptive work. And those same groupies have prepared the way by laying down palm branches and laying down their coats as Jesus rides in on the donkey. Things are buzzing. The news of something hopeful and exciting is bleeding through the region. And Lance talked about how a few weeks back, God works to take so many things out of us so he can bring in the greater things. And that's what today's teaching out of the book of John is going to end up showing us. But let me set the context first. And you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to have some verses up on the screen. Two passages from the book of Luke. One in Luke 19, 47 to 48, and the other Luke 21, 37 to 38. And so it starts like this in Luke 19. And he was teaching daily at the temple... The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him speak. And so here you see Jesus, in a sense, taking possession of the temple so that it can be that thing that God intended it to be, a place where God's revelation would come into play. Oh, and then your voice got deeper. <laughs> Daily speaking, despite the controversies with the leadership, and then returning to the Mount of Olives. And I want to focus just on two small phrases within there, those two passages. The first one goes that all the people, which meant a massive group, which is a, a, a term that Luke likes to use a lot, all the people were hanging on his words, gripped because of what it told them about life and about God. In Mark chapter 11, it says that the people were astonished by his teaching. 
And you have to ask yourself, is that what it feels like when we engage with the words of God? And I'm not talking about the charisma or the passion or the style of a preacher. I'm talking about when you encounter the words of God, are you astonished by it? Are you gripped by it? Right? And then the second part says, all the people came early in the morning to him in the temple to hear him. What are you willing to get up early for? Now, a lot of us, if your job asks you to get up early, you will get up early and you will be there. If you have a friend or a family member coming into the airport and they're coming in at that horrid hour of 5.30 in the morning, which you know means you have to get up at 3.45 in order to get ready and get out there, you'll go do it. But when it comes to us having to engage with God's word, how early are we willing to get up? Now, some of you may be amazing that you're that 5 a.m. devotion person. But why is it that churches don't have 8 a.m. services anymore? Or sunrise services? Just a thought. But let's actually take that thought and this aspect of people being gripped by Jesus' words and willing to get up early to come hear him and hear some of the things he teaches. And so we're going to be on page 899 in the Bibles in the seat in front of you. Um, it's, it's going to be John chapter 12, verses 20 to 36. That's where you can turn today, because that's the passage that we're going to be going through. And you're going to see Jesus giving one of the most amazing teaches, teachings that we can ever hear about the gospel. Now it goes like this. Now among those, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. And so these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And so you start with these Greeks who come up to Jerusalem to worship. And when it says Greeks, it literally means in the, in the Greek, Hellenists. So it's a certain type of Greek. It means anyone not Jewish, but specifically people that follow the Hellenistic world culture that Alexander the Great brought through the Greek, the Greek Persian Empire when he came into being and he spread it around the kingdom. And so these are Greeks that they're attracted to, to Judaism. They admired something of the Jewish faith and the way of life. They respected its traditions, but in a way they're simply half converts. They're only practicing certain parts of the faith. They're picking and choosing. They still have allegiance to their culture and allegiance to their worldview. But they're interested and drawn to the worship of Yahweh. And so they've heard the news of Jesus, but they wanted to hear and see more of Jesus themselves. And just before this, if you were to just go one verse back in John chapter 12, verse 19, you see the religious leaders saying this phrase. They go, look, you can do nothing. And they're speaking to the temple guards. Look, the whole world has gone after him. These religious leaders who are in opposition to Jesus recognize that everybody, not just Jews, are going to listen to Jesus. And so here you are with these Greeks talking about this. And so they come to check him out, and they're foreigners coming to seek something. They're looking for inspiration. They're looking for meaningful encounter. And in the Greek, it doesn't just say that they asked Philip once. They kept continually asking. They kept saying, Philip, we want to see Jesus. And then Philip was probably ADD. He was probably a young guy. And they were like, hey, Philip, you, you forgot. We want to see Jesus. And so Philip goes and tells Andrew, and they take him to Jesus. And these guys had heard the local and the national gossip. I guarantee you they would have heard of the healings that Jesus had done across the country. I guarantee you they would have heard of the feeding. They would have heard of Lazarus being raised from the dead. They would have heard um, of what just happened a few days before when Jesus in Mark 11 goes and he clears out the temple outer courts. 
He had expelled, remember Lance talked about this, all the traitors, all the money changers from the outer courts, the courts where these men, these Greeks would get a chance to go and worship. And Jesus said he did that so that place would serve its ordained purpose as a house of prayer for all the nations. And I wondered if they were thinking, was his action truly for people like us, whose privilege had been diminished by the clutter? They needed to know. I guarantee you they'd heard about his ideas and his philosophies. Because even back then, people were known for what they thought, what they believed, and what they taught. And they heard that Jesus was looking for followers and not just those of his own kind. They'd been chasing after a religion in Judaism that was exclusive. Only the circumcised could come near to the Lord. But now this man was saying others could come and be saved. And so they find Philip because he has a... Hellenistic Greek name and he's from Bethsaida which is one of the most Greek cities around Galilee and they say we want to see Jesus and on one level it seems like a general opportunity to to talk and just have an interview with Jesus we want to ask you some questions we want to understand more about you but you have to understand that the way John writes the word the verb of seeing has a greater purpose because John over and over again 84 times in his gospel puts the words come and see together, and they are always were invitations to believe and follow Jesus. Yes. It's like Rice Krispie treats all in my pocket. So, so these guys are not just coming to interview Jesus, they're coming to follow Jesus. And so in their interview and discussion with him, they wanted to know the news of what it meant to follow this man. And and it makes me think, if you had that chance, if you got 10 minutes face-to-face with Jesus, if you got an hour, if you got six hours, what questions would you ask? What would you want to know? Because Jesus ends up here sharing the news of life, both the reality of salvation and discipleship, blended together so you can understand what kingdom living looks like. And the passage never actually tells us if these Greeks got a chance to go and encounter Jesus. But you get a chance to see his response, and I believe we get that, so that anybody who encounters this, who reads this, that requests to see Jesus, gets to hear the reality of new life. And so let's walk through the text, John 12, now verses 23 and 24, and it says, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so Jesus starts by talking about this hour. And it's not just any hour. It's the hour when the Son of Man is going to be glorified. And this is summing up his purpose as the Son of Man, as the Son of God here on earth. It's no longer just going to be a possibility for the future. It was now becoming imminent and a reality. It wasn't something that was just going to be celebrated by the triumphal entry as they came into Jerusalem. Now it was going to get real. And it's a time when not only these Greeks, but all other people would experience the life that he was imparting. Where true spiritual encounter and following could occur on the other side of what was about to come. And so these Greeks coming to him were a marker in a way. They were the the firing gun that inaugurates this time where the Son of Man is going to be glorified. And everybody is ready for this. And you can only understand what Jesus is saying when you understand all that he taught about the reality that as the Son of Man, he had this descent, the incarnation when he came down and now he was going to be ascending back to the Father. And so now everything's coming to its full conclusion so that his glorification would have its fullest work. And so this is the hour Jesus kept speaking about in all the Gospels. And yet it's not an hour of tragedy, it's an hour of triumph. 
And Jesus says, truly, truly, one dies so that many may live. He gives this principle that life is only given through death. And he gives that illustration of a grain of wheat falling into the earth and dying, producing much more than just itself. Jesus makes it really clear. If this one dies, it bears much fruit. And he's speaking of himself. He's saying, I am willing to be utterly expended, that God's purpose may be fulfilled, and that new life may spring up in everyone, that it would spring up in all. Jesus had said this before in John's gospel. He had said it in John 6, that he would give his flesh for the world. He had said it in John 10, 15, that he gives up his life for the flock. Jesus had said it, that he would not only lay down his life for his sheep, but for other sheep that were not part of the flock. So again, you have that reference with these Greeks coming in. But I want you guys to understand something. It's not the simple fact of death that saves. Because if it was the simple fact of death that saves, they could have kept sacrificing animals... For their sin. It's how and why one dies. And so I want to give you an illustration from a theologian named Jay Denny. Because he gets the picture where he goes, imagine you're sitting on the end of a pier, and maybe you're eating a sandwich, or you're fishing, or you're doing something else, and suddenly you hear someone running down the dock, and they run by you, and they jump in the water, and they go, greater love has no other than this, and they drown. He goes, if that happened... I might be in much need of love, but I would find it quite unintelligible because it has no rational relation to any of my necessities that is proven. But he says, but if I was sitting on the end of the pier and I fell off and I started drowning and somebody runs down the dock and they spring into the water and at the cost of their own life makes my fate his own, saving me from death. And he says, then I can say, greater love has no other than this. And it's meaningful, because there would be a relation between the sacrifice that's given and the, and the necessity from which it's saved. So let me simplify it. The grain of wheat doesn't just die because. It dies to undo something. It dies to save us who are in danger. It dies to bring life to people who are about to lose it, who in fact have already lost it. So when Jesus is talking about his death and his death bearing much fruit, it's for a huge purpose for what we are experiencing. Now, a lot of us read that and we go, yeah, that's exactly, yeah, Jesus died for us. I get it. But when Jesus is speaking about this, the same principle is also applying to how disciples, followers of Jesus follow after him. Because we are then called to relinquish hold of our life. That that is part of the key participation in the kingdom. And you see that come up in the next couple verses about that, how those who are saved live out this imitation and reflection of one grain falling to the ground and dying so that many will live. And so look at verses 25 and 26. This is some of the hardest passages of Scripture. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, my father will honor him. I don't know about you, but this is not one of those verses that I memorize and I go around quoting and putting on Facebook. He talks about this discipleship and it's discipleship by surrender. It's taking that law of the grain and he's saying, if you love life, you're going to lose it. And it literally means you're going to destroy it. 
Loving life is a self-defeating process. It destroys the very life it's seeking to retain. And I don't know how much we actually like this concept of Jesus. I look on social media, I look at people's rhythms, and I look at people's priorities, and I believe we're loving a lot of life. I don't know, maybe I'm the only person struggling with that. Maybe you guys have it down, and you're really good at hating life. But this is one of those things that I think a lot of us go, ah, I think Jesus is exaggerating. And yes, there is hyperbole here. But I think Jesus is also calling us to live in imitation and reflection of what he's done. And you have to understand, when it says that the one who loves their life destroys their life, the Greek word for that is apollonai. And it, it's a root of, of the word destroy, apollion. And you might have heard that name before if you've ever read the book of Revelation. That when the locusts are released in the middle of Revelation to torment people, they come out and they're chanting these words. And they say a name in Hebrew and they say a name in Greek and it means the same thing. And the word in Greek is apollion, the destroyer. So when he says, you love, if you love your life, you destroy it, he's talking about the one who has been destroying life by enticing us in our sin to live for ourselves and to live for no other. Jesus had talked about it earlier in John 10. The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And he says, when you love your life, you're living in the way that he has convinced us is worth living. It's another name for the spirit of selfishness, which is unwilling to spend or be spent for any higher object other than self-enjoyment or self-enhancement. It's a focus on self that denies God's control, God's leadership, God's authority. And in contrast, he says, the one who hates his life will keep it. One whose priorities are right and have such an attitude of love for the things of God that in comparison, it always looks like they hate their own life because they're running after everything God calls them to do. And that's just what it seems like from the world. So it's someone that has this different spirit where the value and identity of life means self-sacrifice, the path of surrender. Somebody who has obedience to the divine will and they decline to make themselves the focus of interest. Somebody that as Mark and Luke and Matthew say this in another way, the person who takes up their cross daily and follows after him. And so to love one's life here means to give it priority over the interests of the kingdom. To hate one's life means you give the kingdom priority over your life. And I know the nuance here. I know that a lot of us go, no, 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 I agree with you, but I'm going to define what are God's kingdom values and interests. I'm not going to let scripture tell me. I'm going to go what I believe the Christian kingdom is about. And that way I can justify the things I want to love and the things I want to hold on to. But again, maybe this is just my struggle. Maybe you guys have this down. But basically what Jesus is saying is he's saying, when we're talking about life, you have to remember it's not your life. God gave you your life. As Paul would say, you were bought at a price. One died, he's already said this, so that many may survive. And so it doesn't make any sense if you now love the life that was saved more than the one who saved it. And so Jesus is going, come on, live into the reality of what your master is doing. He's asking for this principle of imitation, that we are prepared to renounce present interests for the sake of the current kingdom purposes and the future inheritance of Jesus. And we make that possible for others rather than just trying to gain life for ourselves again and again and again. But then he keeps going and he talks about discipleship as servanthood. And he says, anyone who serves me follows me. 
They are where I am. And if Jesus is in a position of sacrifice and a position of surrender, with the focus off of ourselves, we can now focus on his purpose, what he is doing. We can fulfill what he wants to have happen for his kingdom. And so we're taken into his work, and we learn from his word and action, and we end up sharing in the master's suffering. But when you share in the master's suffering, you also share in the master's glory that he was talking about. And that new focus ends up narrowing us into the most challenging action within this, which is the discipleship as following. And not just following a concept or following a practice, but following the person of Jesus. To recognize that you are not in the front, you are not in the driver's seat, despite how much you have tried to be. That you are dependent on him. That when you try to seek and find life, and if you find it in the self, and you find it in the world, you're always going to be disappointed. But when you seek and find life in Jesus, things change. And so Jesus, electrifyingly, in an electrified way, he's saying all this to challenge people, not just to receive what his death does, but to live into it as disciples. And he says, you are honored by the Father for serving and following in such a way in his kingdom. That's a great challenge. That's a huge challenge. But let's keep going. Jesus in verses 27 to 30 now turns it back to his wrestling and his agony over what's about to happen. And he says, now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then it says a voice came from heaven and says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And the crowd stands there dumbfounded. And some go, it was thunder. And some go, I think an angel spoke to him. And Jesus goes, That voice was for your sake, not for mine. And what you're getting a chance to see here is you're getting to see Jesus in this continuous, troubled turmoil. That he is wrestling with that human reaction of confrontation with death. And you're going to see the same thing again when Jesus is in the garden. When he's in the garden of Gethsemane. And he's wrestling with what is about to happen starting with his arrest. And it's the same things. You see Jesus talking about the hour that's going to come. You see Jesus talking about being troubled and having a sorrowful soul. You see Jesus saying, save me. Let this pass from me. May may you remove this cup. You hear a voice from the sky and an angel in the garden is strengthening him. Almost all the same pieces come up again. But Jesus in his response gives this statement. He looks at a prayer that he could pray and he refuses to pray it because he knows his father. He knows God's covenant purpose. He knows God's capability. And so he says, Father, save me from this coming hour. And literally in the Greek, it doesn't say but. It says no. Save me from this coming hour. No, I'm not going to pray that. It's for this purpose I have come into this hour. Hebrews 5, 7 reflects this, looking back on that. It goes, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. That Jesus spoke out to God, and he wasn't going to do what humanity would do, but he was going to call God to accomplish that mission precisely in the suffering that was planned. And so he rejects the human no, and he affirms the divine yes. He takes the road of terror and glory. He's ready to meet that hour head on, and you have to realize that Jesus went into that voluntarily. He did not die against his own will. He died because he wanted to see you live. And you need to hear that again today. 
And so you get that sneak peek of Jesus' anguish and his strength of obedience as he conforms his life to the Father's will. And we end up experiencing that same turmoil as we struggle to conform and surrender to his will. Because every time you try to make the decision to not love your life, it feels like an emotional, mental, physical battle. And that's why we get a chance to see that picture. And then Jesus points upward and he goes, Father, glorify your name. And he takes it all back to the praise of the Father, that God's sovereign action will be seen and encountered for his will to be done. And that's because Jesus knew what God's purpose and his revelation has always said. That despite the fact that God desires our relationship with us, and despite the fact that he has acted on our behalf, like Ezekiel 36 says, God does all these things for his own sake. So he will be glorified. He always points it back to how am I going to be exalted in this? And that's when the voice comes from heaven and says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Because God has been glorified from the moment Jesus was incarnated. He has, he has been glorified with every miracle and every teaching and every response that Jesus has been doing. And he's going to be glorified again when Jesus is lifted up on the cross. And what's the crowd's reflection? They've, they know of this awareness of an impression you can get from God, but it had been four to five hundred years since the prophets had said, thus said the Lord, or for them to hear any type of theophany from heaven. And so everybody's kind of shocked. And all they hear, some of them, is thunder. Now, is that because God's voice was so... And they're like, I didn't understand him. Did the angels speak in another language? I believe what's happening is that that they have a spiritual deafness. Because you're going to see that in the next part of chapter 12. That doesn't allow them to perceive God's very speaking. And that's why Jesus says, that voice has come for your sake, not mine. And if you're like me you're going to go, well, I don't understand that. Because if he says that, but they didn't understand it, but doesn't it seem purposeless or futile? Well, I think we have to zoom back to like a 30,000-foot view and remember that even if this wasn't grasped immediately, the message that John recorded is such an enormous benefit for the disciples once they've lived through the period of the cross. And they're thinking about the things that God said and that Jesus said, and they're saying, do you remember when that angel or the Lord spoke from the heavens? He had said, I will glorify it again, and I have glorified it. And they're like, oh, that's what it's about. And so this voice from heaven is like a signal. It's the hour and nature of what's about to happen. And they're hearing and witnessing the mission's launch. And we're hearing it after the fact, and we're hearing it as hope and change and everything that's about to happen now in our lives. Then Jesus says probably the greatest part of all this. Verses 31 to 33, he says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people unto myself. He said that to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And so now you are getting the purpose of the cross laid out for you. The cross and the glorification of the Son means judgment for the world. And I know when we look at the cross and when we wear the crosses and when we think of the cross, we go, yes, that's the blood of Jesus and that's mercy and that's love. But you have to remember it represents judgment first. It represents the wrath of God being poured out. He's talking about the cross where he would bear the judgment of all of the weight of humanity's sin. 
And so, yes, we see that negative side of judgment, but you have to remember with the law of the kingdom that he has just said that a grain of wheat dies so that many will live. The death of the seed secures life for the many, and so judgment is positive. And so we can't be the kind of people that go, man, I hate that God in the Old Testament, or I hate when God just seems like he's so mean. You can't be a judging God. You have to be a God of love. God cannot be a God of love if he is not a God of judgment. Because if there is no judgment, then there was no reason for Jesus to go on the cross in the first place. And there was no reason for him to die. Sorry, I get a little excited. And so in this, he starts unmasking in this coming hour what sacrifice is going to mean and that it's going to mean a crisis of belief for the world because in our final and our definite reaction to him we're going to end up passing judgment on ourselves showing what we're really about and really who is ruler of our life but see the cross and the glorification of the son doesn't just mean judgment for the world what else does he say it means judgment of the ruler of this world that he is cast out And that's a term that John uses to describe Satan, one who is hostile to God. It comes up again in 2 Corinthians 4.4, saying that he is the God of this world who has blinded us. And in Ephesians 2.2, the prince of the power of the air. He is the one who has ruled how mankind has lived and functioned in life. He is the one that has bonded people in slavery, has left them in guilt, have heaped so much busyness on them that he has distracted and played a role and them getting farther and farther from God. And that's why he's a prince. That's why he's a ruler, because he has that much power. But the hour has come where this ruler is going to make a decisive assault on Jesus. It looks like it's the time when Satan's going to triumph. And even at Jesus' arrest in Luke 22, 53, he says to all of them, this is your hour of the power of darkness. But it's the hour when the the ruler of the world is going to be removed and cast out because he has no more grounds for an appeal against Jesus. He is defeated and Jesus ends up exalted. The ruler of this world loses his claim on the world and is driven from the center of power. If you want to see that in another part of the scriptures, you go to Revelation 12, 11. And you get the metaphor there when it talks about the dragon being cast down from heaven. And it says that he is cast down because of the blood of the lamb and the word of the testimony of the saints. And you're seeing that same war go on. And I know some of you are going, but yeah, but why does it seem like Satan and his demons still have so much power? Why does it seem like they're still putting so much of our world in darkness? You have to be reminded that the warfare still is going. Ephesians 6 lays all that out for you. But the residual power that Satan and his demons still have left It's restricted even further by the Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. Which is why when we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, when we do anything in the name of Jesus Christ, it has more power than anything that Satan and the ruler of this world has tried to do. So the cross is not just judgment of the world, it's the defeat of Satan. But then he says the most important part. He says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And he had said that two other times. He said that with Nicodemus, and he said that in chapter 8. And I know a lot of us, we look at it and we go, yes, he's talking about the fact that he's going to be lifted up on the cross, because the next verse talks about how he's describing the way he's going to die, but the emphasis in the passage and the way the sentence is structured and in what Jesus is trying to say in all of this is his emphasis is on the reality that he will draw all men to him. 
He says, it's about all of us having that reality of having direct access to God and new life. And so if he was there with the Greeks still, he was able to say to them, soon, and that meant now, all people are drawn to Jesus and freely able to encounter God through this work that's happening on the cross. He will draw them not just to his physical self. They wanted to see Jesus physically. Now they're going to be drawn to his resurrected self and the impartation of the Spirit. And think about it. For over 2,000 years now, countless, whoa, countless people, hundreds of thousands, millions, hundreds of millions, billions, I don't know, have been drawn to the one who created this world but chose to humble himself to the point of death to set this world right, to bring us back into relationship with him. How can you not love a king who does such a work as that? And so we end up standing before the cross and all that Jesus' coming means, and it reveals something about us. It speaks to an identity that we either realize or we don't. It puts every person on this earth, every person in this room, in a crisis moment. Maybe you've been through it already or you're in it right now or you're going to be soon, that you are choosing whether we're a follower of Jesus or we're a rebel, that we are sons of light or sons of darkness, that we're moving towards him or fleeing as fast as we can from him and his will. The crowd ends up giving a little answer right in the middle of Jesus talking about this because they're hearing him say all this. They're talking about the Son of Man and they're talking about him being lifted up. And they go, wait, we heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Because Jesus has used trigger words. These are messianic claims. And so their minds are already full of when Jesus came in on the donkey and everyone's shouting out, Hosanna, he saves. And they're going, this is it. He's going to kick Rome in the face and Israel's kingdom is set up and we have a new king that's going to live forever. And they're taking everything they know from their Jewish intertestamental literature and their concepts of what the Messiah was to be, to be triumphant and to be victorious and to be eternal. And Jesus knew that because in John chapter 6, He had already had to hide himself because he knew that they were going to make him king by force. So he had waited all until this time because he knew that they already thought that way. But they're asking this question, what sort of Messiah is this who finds glory and victory in death? Maybe you don't know what you are, Jesus. Maybe you don't realize what you're supposed to do. And I think we ask that same question when it comes to us trying to follow in discipleship, when it comes to whether we're going to love our life or hate it, that we go, wait a second, Jesus, who are you really and what are you doing? Why should I attach myself to such a claim of life if you're going to tell me it's all about surrender and sacrifice and servanthood? This is where Jesus finishes it in verses 35 and 36. And he says, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. So while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. And after he had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And so Jesus doesn't even answer what they asked. But he challenges them back. He says, and Lance has been saying this the last couple weeks too. He says, abandon all these expectations you have about what God should be the ways that you have put God and his work and your responsibility as a follower in a box. And he goes, let's remove all that 
and make a committed and true decision and make it soon. And remember, all throughout John's gospel, he is talking about this, that Jesus is the light. John chapter 1 talks about how the Logos, the Word, is the light and life of all men who is coming into the world to provide illumination for all, the light that shines in the midst of darkness and is not overcome by it. In John 8, 12, Jesus says it of himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is the light that keeps you alive. This is the light that helps you survive. Because in the end, if you don't allow that light to lead you, darkness will destroy us. It will overtake us. 